Section 12 of Back to Methuselah by George Bernard Shaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Thomas Copeland. Section 12, the conclusion of Part 3, The Thing Happens. The domestic minister enters. She is a handsome woman, apparently in the prime of life, with elegant, tense, well-held-up figure, and the walk of a goddess. Her expression and deportment are grave, swift, decisive, awful, unanswerable she wears a dionesque tunic instead of a blouse and a silver coronet instead of a gold fillet her dress otherwise is not markedly different from that of the men who rise as she enters and incline their heads with instinctive awe she comes to the vacant chair between barnabas and confucius burge lupin resolutely genial and gallant delighted to see you mrs lutestring confucius we are honoured by your celestial presence. Barnabas. Good day, madam. The Archbishop. I have not had the pleasure of meeting you before. I am the Archbishop of York. Mrs. Lutestring. Surely we have met, Mr. Archbishop. I remember your face. We... She checks herself suddenly. Ah, oh, no, I remember now. It was someone else. She sits down. They all sit down. The Archbishop, also puzzled. Are you sure you are mistaken? I also have some association with your face, Mrs. Lutestring, something like a door opening continually and revealing you, and a smile of welcome when you recognized me. Did you ever open a door for me, I wonder? Mrs. Lutestring, I often opened a door for the person you have just reminded me of, but he has been dead many years. The rest, except the Archbishop, look at one another quickly. Confucius. May I ask how many years? Mrs. Lutestring, struck by his tone, looks at him for a moment with some displeasure, then replies, It does not matter. A long time. Burge Lubin. You mustn't rush to conclusions about the Archbishop, Mrs. Lutestring. He is an older bird than you think. Older than you, at all events. Mrs. Lutestring, with a melancholy smile. I think not, Mr. President but the subject is a delicate one. I had rather not pursue it. Confucius. There is a question which has not been asked. Mrs. Lutestring, very decisively. If it is a question about my age, Mr. Chief Secretary, it had better not be asked. All that concerns you about my personal affairs can be found in the books of the Accountant General. Confucius. The question I was thinking of will not be addressed to you. But... Let me say that your sensitiveness on the point is very strange, coming from a woman so superior to all common weaknesses as we know you to be. Mrs. Lutestring. I may have reasons which have nothing to do with common weaknesses, Mr. Chief Secretary. I hope you will respect them. Confucius, after bowing to her in assent. I will now put my question. Have you, Mr. Archbishop, any ground for assuming, as you seem to do, that what has happened to you has not happened to other people as well? Burge Lubin. Yes, by George, I never thought of that. The Archbishop. I have never met any case but my own. Confucius. How do you know? The Archbishop. Well, no one has ever told me that they were in this extraordinary position. Confucius. That proves nothing. Did you ever tell anybody that you were in it? You never told us. Why did you never tell us? The Archbishop. 
"'I am surprised at the question coming from so astute a mind as yours, Mr. Secretary. "'When you reached the age I reached before I discovered what was happening to me, "'I was old enough to know and fear the ferocious hatred "'with which human animals, like all other animals, turn upon any unhappy individual "'who has the misfortune to be unlike themselves in every respect, "'to be unnatural, as they call it. "'You will still find among the tales of that twentieth-century classic wells a story of a race of men who grew twice as big as their fellows and another story of a man who fell into the hands of a race of blind men the big people had to fight the little people for their lives and the man with eyes would have had his eyes put out by the blind had he not fled to the desert where he perished miserably wells's teaching on that and other matters was not lost on me by the way he lent me five pounds once which i never repaid and it still troubles my conscience confucius and were you the only reader of wells if there were others like you had they not the same reason for keeping the secret the archbishop that is true but i should know you short-lived people are so childish if i met a man of my own age i should recognize him at once i have never done so mrs lutestring would you recognize a woman of your age, do you think? The Archbishop. I... He stops and turns upon her with a searching look, startled by the suggestion and the suspicion it rouses. Mrs. Lutestring. What is your age, Mr. Archbishop? Burge Lubin. Two hundred and eighty-three, he says. That is his little joke. Do you know, Mrs. Lutestring, he had almost talked us into believing him when you came in and cleared the air with your robust common sense. Mrs. Lutestring, do you really feel that, Mr. President? I hear the note of breezy assertion in your voice. I miss the note of conviction. Burge Lubin, jumping up, look here, let us stop talking damp nonsense. I don't wish to be disagreeable, but it's getting on my nerves. The best joke won't bear being pushed beyond a certain point that point has been reached i i'm rather busy this morning we all have our hands pretty full confucius here will tell you that i have a heavy day before me barnabas have you anything more important than this thing if it's true burge lubin oh if 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 it's true but it isn't true barnabas have you anything at all to do Burge Lubin. Anything to do? Have you forgotten, Barnabas, that I happen to be president, and that the weight of the entire public business of this country is on my shoulders? Barnabas. Has he anything to do, Confucius? Confucius. He has to be president. Barnabas. That means that he has nothing to do. Burge Lubin, sulkily. Very well, Barnabas. Go on making a fool of yourself. He sits down. Go on. Barnabas. I am not going to leave this room until we get to the bottom of this swindle. Mrs. Lutestring, turning with deadly gravity on the accountant general. This what, did you say? Confucius. These expressions cannot be sustained. You obscure the discussion in using them. Barnabas, glad to escape from her gaze by addressing Confucius. Well, this unnatural horror, will that satisfy you? Confucius, that is in order. But we do not commit ourselves to the implications of the word horror. The Archbishop, 
by the word horror the accountant general means only something unusual confucius i notice that the honourable domestic minister on learning the advanced age of the venerable prelate shows no signs of surprise or incredulity burge lubin she doesn't take it seriously who would eh mrs lutestring mrs lutestring i take it very seriously indeed mr president i see now that i was not mistaken at first i have met the archbishop before the archbishop i felt sure of it this vision of a door opening to me and a woman's face welcoming me must be a reminiscence of something that really happened though i see it now as an angel opening the gate of heaven mrs lutestring or a parlour-maid opening the door of the house the young woman you were in love with the archbishop making a wry face is that the reality how these things grow in our imagination but may i say mrs lutestring that the transfiguration of a parlour-maid to an angel is not more amazing than her transfiguration to the very dignified and able domestic minister i am addressing i recognize the angel in you frankly i do not recognize the parlour-maid burge lubin what's a parlour-maid mrs lutestring an extinct species a woman in a black dress and white apron who opened the house door when people knocked or rang and was either your tyrant or your slave i was a parlour-maid in the house of one of the accountant-general's remote ancestors to confucius you ask me my age mr chief secretary i am two hundred and seventy-four burge lubin gallantly you don't look it you really don't look it mrs lutestring turning her face gravely towards him look again mr president burge lubin looking at her bravely until the smile fades from his face and he suddenly covers his eyes with his hands yes you do look it i am convinced it's true now call up the lunatic asylum confucius and tell them to send an ambulance for me mrs lutestring to the archbishop why have you given away your secret our secret the archbishop they found it out the cinema records betrayed me but i never dreamt that there were others did you mrs lutestring i knew one other she was a cook she grew tired and killed herself the archbishop dear me however her death simplifies the situation as i have been able to convince these gentlemen that the matter had better go no further mrs lutestring what when the president knows it will be all over the place before the end of the week burge lubin injured really mrs lutestring you speak as if i were a notoriously indiscreet person barnabas have i such a reputation barnabas resignedly it can't be helped it's constitutional confucius it is utterly unconstitutional but as you say it cannot be helped burge lubin solemnly i deny that a secret of state has ever passed my lips except perhaps to the minister of health who is discretion personified people think because she is a negress mrs lutestring it does not matter much now once it would have mattered a great deal but my children are all dead the archbishop yes the children must have been a terrible difficulty fortunately for me i had none mrs lutestring there was one daughter who was the child of my very heart some years after my first drowning i learnt that she had lost her sight i went to her she was an old woman of ninety-six blind she asked me to sit and talk with her 
because my voice was like the voice of her dead mother. Burge Lubin. The complications must be frightful. Really, I hardly know whether I do want to live much longer than other people. Mrs. Lutestring. You can always kill yourself, as Cook did, but that was influenza. Long life is complicated and even terrible, but it is glorious all the same. I would no more change places with an ordinary woman than with a mayfly that lives only an hour. The Archbishop. What set you thinking of it first? Mrs. Lutestring. Conrad Barnabas's book. Your wife told me it was more wonderful than Napoleon's book of fate and old Moore's almanac, which Cook and I used to read. I was very ignorant. It did not seem so impossible to me as to an educated woman. Yet I forgot all about it, and married and drudged as a poor man's wife, and brought up children, and looked twenty years older than I really was, until one day, long after my husband died and my children were out in the world working for themselves, I noticed that I looked twenty years younger than I really was. The truth came to me in a flash. Verge Lubin. An amazing moment. Your feelings must have been beyond description. What was your first thought? Mrs. Lutestring. Pure terror. I saw that the little money I had laid up would not last, and that I must go out and work again. They had things called old age pensions then, miserable pittances for worn-out old laborers to die on. I thought I should be found out if I went on drawing it too long. The horror of facing another lifetime of drudgery, of missing my hard-earned rest and losing my poor little savings, drove everything else out of my mind. You people nowadays can have no conception of the dread of poverty that hung over us then, or of the utter tiredness of forty years unending overwork and striving to make a shilling do the work of a pound. The Archbishop. I wonder you did not kill yourself. I often wonder why the poor in those evil old times did not kill themselves. They did not even kill other people. Mrs. Lutestring. You never kill yourself, because you always may as well wait until tomorrow, and you have not energy or conviction enough to kill the others. Besides, how can you blame them when you would do as they do if you were in their place? Burge Lubin. Devilish poor consolation, that. Mrs. Lutestring. There were other consolations in those days for people like me. We drank preparations of alcohol to relieve the strain of living and give us an artificial happiness. Burge Lubin, Confucius, Barnabas, altogether making wry faces. Alcohol? Pfft! Disgusting. Mrs. Lutestring. A little alcohol would improve your temper and manners and make you much easier to live with, Mr. Accountant General. Burge Lubin, laughing. By George, I believe you. Try it, Barnabas. Confucius. No, try tea. It is the most civilized poison of the two. Mrs. Lutestring. You, Mr. President, were born intoxicated with your own well-fed natural exuberance. You cannot imagine what alcohol was to an underfed poor woman. I had carefully arranged my little savings so that I could get drunk, as we called it, once a week and my only pleasure was looking forward to that poor little debauch. That is what saved me from suicide. I could not bear to miss my next carouse. But when I stopped working and lived on my pension, the fatigue of my life's drudgery began to wear off, because, you see, I was not really old. I recuperated. I looked younger and younger, and at last 
I was rested enough to have courage and strength to begin life again. Besides, political changes were making it easier. Life was a little better worth living for the nine-tenths of the people who used to be mere drudges. After that, I never turned back or faltered. My only regret now is that I shall die when I am three hundred or thereabouts. There was only one thing that made life hard, and that is gone now. Confucius. May we ask what that was? Mrs. Lutestring. Perhaps you will be offended if I tell you. Burge Lubin. Offended? My dear lady, do you suppose, after such a stupendous revelation, that anything short of a blow from a sledgehammer could produce the smallest impression on any of us? Mrs. Lutestring. Well, you see, it has been so hard on me never to meet a grown-up person. You are all such children, and I never was very fond of children except that one girl who woke up the mother passion in me. I have been very lonely sometimes. Burge Lubin, again gallant. But surely, Mrs. Lutestring, that has been your own fault. If I may say so, a lady of your attractions need never have been lonely. Mrs. Lutestring. Why? Burge Lubin. Why? Well, 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 uh, well, he gives it up. The Archbishop. He means that you might have married. Curious how little they understand our position. Mrs. Lutestring. I did marry. I married again on my hundred and first birthday. But, of course, I had to marry an elderly man, a man over sixty. He was a great painter. On his deathbed he said to me, It has taken me fifty years to learn my trade, and to paint all the foolish pictures a man must paint and get rid of before he comes through them to the great things he ought to paint. And now that my foot is at last on the threshold of the temple, I find that it is also the threshold of my tomb. That man would have been the greatest painter of all time if he could have lived as long as I. I saw him die of old age, whilst he was still, as he said himself, a gentleman amateur, like all modern painters. Burge Lubin. But why had you to marry an elderly man? Why not marry a young one? Or shall I say a middle-aged one? If my own affections were not already engaged, and if, to tell the truth, I were not a little afraid of you, for you are a very superior woman, as we all acknowledge, I should esteem myself happy in, uh, uh, Mrs. Lutestring, Mr. President, have you ever tried to take advantage of the innocence of a little child for the gratification of your senses? Burge Lubin. Good heavens, madam, what do you take me for? What right have you to ask me such a question? Mrs. Lutestring, I'm at present in my two hundred and seventy-fifth year. You suggest that I should take advantage of the innocence of a child of thirty and marry it. The Archbishop, can you short-lived people not understand that, as the confusion and immaturity and primitive animalism in which we live for the first hundred years of our life is worse in this matter of sex than in any other, you are intolerable to us in that relation? Burge Lubin, do you mean to say, Mrs. Lutestring, that you regard me as a child? Mrs. Lutestring, do you expect me to regard you as a completed soul? Oh, you may well be afraid of me. There are moments when your levity, your ingratitude, your shallow jollity make my gorge rise so against you that if I could not remind myself that you are a child, I should be tempted to doubt your right to live at all. Confucius, do you grudge us the few years we have? 
You who have three hundred? Urge Lubin. You accuse me of levity. Must I remind you, madam, that I am the president, and that you are only the head of a department? Barnabas. In gratitude, too, you draw a pension for three hundred years, when we owe you only seventy-eight, and you call us ungrateful. Mrs. Lutestring. I do. When I think of the blessings that have been showered on you, and contrast them with the poverty, the humiliations, the anxieties, the heartbreak, the insolence and tyranny that were the daily lot of mankind when I was learning to suffer instead of learning to live, when I see how lightly you take it all, how you quarrel over the crumpled leaves in your beds of roses, how you are so dainty about your work that unless it is made either interesting or delightful to you, you leave it to negresses and Chinamen. I ask myself whether even three hundred years of thought and experience can save you from being superseded by the power that created you and put you on your trial. Virgilubin, my dear lady, our Chinese and colored friends are perfectly happy. They are twenty times better off here than they would be in China or Liberia. They do their work admirably, and in doing it they set us free for higher employments. The Archbishop, who has caught the infection of her indignation, what higher employments are you capable of, you that are superannuated at seventy and dead at eighty? Mrs. Lutestring, you are not really doing higher work. You are supposed to make the decisions and give the orders, but the negresses and the Chinese make up your minds for you and tell you what orders to give, just as my brother, who was a sergeant in the guards, used to prompt his officers in the old days. When I want to get anything done at the health ministry, I do not come to you. I go to the black lady who has been the real president during your present term of office, or to Confucius, who goes on for ever while presidents come and presidents go. Burge Lubin. This is outrageous. This is treason to the white race. And let me tell you, madam, that I have never in my life met the minister of health, and that I protest against the vulgar color prejudice which disparages her great ability and her eminent services to the state. My relations with her are purely telephonic, gramophonic, photophonic, and, may I add, platonic. The Archbishop. There is no reason why you should be ashamed of them in any case, Mr. President, but let us look at the position impersonally. Can you deny that what is happening is that the English people have become a joint stock company admitting Asiatics and Africans as shareholders? Barnabas. Nothing like it. I know all about the old joint stock companies. The shareholders did no work. The Archbishop. That is true. But we, like them, get our dividends whether we work or not. We work partly because we know there would be no dividends if we did not, and partly because if we refuse we are regarded as mentally deficient and put into a lethal chamber. But what do we work at? Before the few changes we were forced to make by the revolutions that followed the Four Years' War, our governing classes had been so rich, as it was called, that they had become the most intellectually lazy and fat-headed people on the face of the earth. There is a good deal of that fat still clinging to us. Burge Lubin. As president, I must not listen to unpatriotic criticisms of our national character, Mr. Archbishop. The Archbishop. As Archbishop, Mr. President, it is my official duty to criticize the national character unsparingly. At the canonization of St. Henry Ibsen, you yourself unveiled the monument to him which bears on its pedestal the noble inscription, I came 
not to call sinners, but the righteous, to repentance. The proof of what I say is that our routine work, and what may be called our ornamental and figurehead work, is being more and more sought after by the English, whilst the thinking, organizing, calculating, directing work is done by yellow brains, brown brains, and black brains, just as it was done in my early days by Jewish brains, Scottish brains, Italian brains, German brains. The only white men who still do serious work are those who, like the accountant-general, have no capacity for enjoyment, and no social gifts to make them welcome outside their offices. Barnabas, confound your impudence, I had gifts enough to find you out, anyhow. The Archbishop, disregarding this outburst. If you were to kill me as I stand here, you would have to appoint an Indian to succeed me. I take precedence today not as an Englishman, but as a man with more than a century and a half of fully adult experience. We are letting all the power slip into the hands of the colored people. In another hundred years we shall be simply their household pets. Burge Lubin, reacting buoyantly. Not the least danger of it. I grant you we leave the most troublesome part of the labor of the nation to them. And a good job, too. Why should we drudge at it? But think of the activities of our leisure. Is there a jollier place on earth to live in than England out of office hours? And to whom do we owe that? To ourselves, not to the niggers. The nigger and the chink are all right from Tuesday to Friday. But from Friday to Tuesday they are simply nowhere. And the real life of England is from Friday to Tuesday. The Archbishop. That is terribly true. In devising brainless amusements, in pursuing them with enormous vigor and taking them with eager seriousness, our English people are the wonder of the world. They always were. And it is just as well, for otherwise their sensuality would become morbid and destroy them. What appalls me is that their amusements should amuse them. They are the amusements of boys and girls. They are pardonable up to the age of fifty or sixty. After that they are ridiculous. I tell you, what is wrong with us is that we are a non-adult race, and the Irish and the Scots and the niggers and chinks, as you call them, though their lifetime is as short as ours or shorter, yet do somehow contrive to grow up a little before they die. We die in boyhood. The maturity that should make us the greatest of all the nations lies beyond the grave for us. Either we shall go under as greybeards with golf clubs in our hands, or we must will to live longer. Mrs. Lutestring, yes, that is it. I could not have expressed it in words, but you have expressed it for me. I felt, even when I was an ignorant domestic slave, that we had the possibility of becoming a great nation within us. But our faults and follies drove me to cynical hopelessness. We all ended, then, like that. It is the highest creatures who take the longest to mature, and are the most helpless during their immaturity. I know now that it took me a whole century to grow up. I began my serious life when I was a hundred and twenty. Asiatics cannot control me. I am not a child in their hands, as you are, Mr. President. Neither, I am sure, is the Archbishop. They respect me. You are not grown up enough even for that, though you were kind enough to say that I frighten you. Burge Lubin. Honestly, you do. And will you think me very rude if I say that if I must choose between a white woman old enough to be my great-grandmother and a black woman of my own age, I shall probably find the black woman more sympathetic? Mrs. Lutestring. And more attractive in color, perhaps? 
urged Lubin. Yes, since you ask me, more. Well, not more attractive. I, I do not deny that you have an excellent appearance, but I will say richer, more Venetian, tropical. The shadowed livery of the burnished sun. Mrs. Lutstream. Our women and their favorite story-writers begin already to talk about men with golden complexions. Confucius expanding into a smile all across both face and body. Ah! Burge Lubin. Well, what of it, madam? Have you read a very interesting book by the librarian of the Biological Society, suggesting that the future of the world lies with the mulatto? Mrs. Lutstring, rising. Mr. Archbishop, if the white race is to be saved, our destiny is apparent. The Archbishop. Yes, our duty is pretty clear. Mrs. Lutstring. Have you time to come home with me and discuss the matter? The Archbishop, rising. With pleasure. Barnabas, rising also and rushing past Mrs. Lutstring to the door, where he turns to bar her way. No, you don't. Burge, you understand, don't you? Burge Lubin. No. What is it? Barnabas. These two are going to marry. Burge Lubin. Why shouldn't they if they want to? Barnabas. They don't want to. They will do it in cold blood because their children will live three hundred years. It mustn't be allowed. Confucius. You cannot prevent it. There is no law that gives you power to interfere with them. Barnabas. If they force me to it, I will obtain legalization against marriages above the age of seventy-eight. The Archbishop. There is not time for that before we are married, Mr. Accountant General. Be good enough to get out of the lady's way. Barnabas. There is time to send the lady to the lethal chamber before anything comes of your marriage. Don't forget that. Mrs. Lutstring. What nonsense, Mr. Accountant General. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Good afternoon, Mr. Chief Secretary. They rise and acknowledge her salutation with bows. She walks straight at the Accountant General, who instinctively shrinks out of her way as she leaves the room. The Archbishop. I am surprised at you, Mr. Barnabas. Your tone was like an echo from the Dark Ages. He follows the domestic minister. Confucius, shaking his head and clucking with his tongue in deprecation of this painful episode, moves to the chair just vacated by the archbishop, and stands behind it with folded palms, looking at the president. The accountant-general shakes his fist after the departed visitors, and bursts into savage abuse of them. Barnabas. Thieves! Cursed thieves! Vampires! What are you going to do, Burge? Burge Lubin. Do? Barnabas. Yes, do. There must be dozens of these people in existence. Are you going to let them do what the two who have just left us mean to do, and crowd us off the face of the earth? Burge Lubin, sitting down. Oh, come, Barnabas, what harm are they doing? Aren't you interested in them? Don't you like them? Barnabas. Like them? I hate them. They are monsters, unnatural monsters. They are poison to me. Burge Lubin. What possible objection can there be to their living as long as they can? It does not shorten our lives, does it? Barnabas. If I have to die when I am seventy-eight, I don't see why another man should be privileged to live to be two hundred and seventy-eight. It does shorten my life, relatively. It makes us ridiculous. If they grew to be twelve feet high, they would make us all dwarfs. They talked to us, 
as if we were children. There is no love lost between us. Their hatred of us came out soon enough. You heard what the woman said and how the archbishop backed her up? Burge Lubin. But what can we do to them? Barnabas. Kill them. Burge Lubin. Nonsense! Barnabas. Lock them up. Sterilize them somehow, anyhow. Burge Lubin. But what reason could we give? Barnabas. What reason can you give for killing a snake? Nature tells you to do it. Burge Lubin. My dear Barnabas, you are out of your mind. Barnabas. Haven't you said that once too often already this morning? Burge Lubin. I don't believe you will carry a single soul with you. Barnabas. I understand. I know you. You think you are one of them. Confucius. Mr. Accountant General, you may be one of them. Barnabas. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? I am an honest man, not a monster. I won my place in public life by demonstrating that the true expectation of human life is 78.6, and I will resist any attempt to alter or upset it to the last drop of my blood, if need be. Burge Lubin. Oh, come, come, hold yourself together. How can you, a descendant of the great Conrad Barnabas, the man who is still remembered for his masterly biography of a black beetle, be so absurd? Barnabas. You had better go and write the autobiography of a jackass. I am going to raise the country against this horror, and against you, if you show the slightest sign of weakness about it. Confucius, very impressively. You will regret it if you do. Barnabas. What is to make me regret it? Confucius. Every mortal man and woman in the community will begin to count on living for three centuries. Things will happen which you do not foresee. Terrible things. The family will dissolve. Parents and children will be no longer the old and the young. Brothers and sisters will meet as strangers after a hundred years' separation. The ties of blood will lose their innocence. The imaginations of men let loose over the possibilities of three centuries of life will drive them mad and wreck human society. This discovery must be kept a dead secret. He sits down. Barnabas. And if I refuse to keep the secret? Confucius. I shall have you safe in a lunatic asylum the day after you blab. Barnabas. You forget that I can produce the archbishop to prove my statement. Confucius. So can I. Which of us do you think he will support when I explain to him that your object in revealing his age is to get him killed? Barnabas, desperate. Burge, are you going to back up this yellow abomination against me? Are we public men and members of the government, or are we damned blackguards? Confucius, unmoved. Have you ever known a public man who was not what vituperative people call a damned blackguard when some inconsiderate person wanted to tell the public mores and was good for it? Barnabas. Hold your tongue, you insolent heathen. Burge, I spoke to you. Burge Lubin. Well, you know, my dear Barnabas, Confucius is a very long-headed chap. I see his point. Barnabas. Do you? Then let me tell you that, except officially, I will never speak to you again. Do you hear? Burge Lubin. Cheerfully. You will. You will. Barnabas. And don't you ever dare speak to me again, do you hear? He turns to the door. Burge Lubin. I will. I will. 
Goodbye, Barnabas. God bless you. Barnabas. May you live forever and be the laughing stock of the whole world. He dashes out in a fury. Bergelubin, laughing indulgently. He will keep the secret all right. I know, Barnabas. You needn't worry. Confucius, troubled and grave. There are no secrets except the secrets that keep themselves. Consider, there are those films at the record office. We have no power to prevent the master's records from publishing this discovery made in his department. We cannot silence the American. Who can silence an American? Nor the people who were there today to receive him. Fortunately, a film can prove nothing but a resemblance. Bergelubin. That's very true. After all, the whole thing is confounded nonsense, isn't it? Confucius, raising his head to look at him. You have decided not to believe it, now that you realize its inconveniences. That is the English method. It may not work in this case. Bergelubin. English be hanged is common sense. You know, those two people got us hypnotized, not a doubt of it. They must have been kidding us. They were, weren't they? Confucius. You looked into that woman's face, and you believed. Bergelubin. Just so. That's where she had me. I shouldn't have believed her a bit if she turned her back to me. Confucius shakes his head slowly and repeatedly. Bergelubin. You really think? He hesitates. Confucius. The archbishop has always been a puzzle to me. Ever since I learnt to distinguish between one English face and another, I have noticed what that woman pointed out, that the English face is not an adult face, just as the English mind is not an adult mind. Bergelubin. Stow it, John Chinaman! If ever there was a race divinely appointed to take charge of the non-adult races and guide them and train them and keep them out of mischief until they grow up to be capable of adopting our institutions, that race is the English race. It is the only race in the world that has that characteristic. Now, Confucius, that is the fancy of a child nursing a doll. But it is ten times more childish of you to dispute the highest compliment ever paid you. Bergelubin, you call it a compliment to class us as grown-up children? Confucius, not grown-up children. Children at fifty, sixty, seventy. Your maturity is so late that you never attain to it. You have to be governed by races which are mature at forty. That means that you are potentially the most highly developed race on earth and would be actually the greatest if you could live long enough to attain to maturity. Bergelubin, grasping the idea at last. By George, Confucius, you're right. I never thought of that. That explains everything. We are just a lot of schoolboys. There's no denying it. Talk to an Englishman about anything serious, and he listens to you curiously for a moment, just as he listens to a chap playing classical music. Then he goes back to his marine golf, or motoring, or flying, or women, just like a bit of stretched elastic when you let it go, soaring to the height of his theme. Oh, you are quite right. We are only in our infancy. I ought to be in a perambulator with a nurse shoving me along. It's true. It's absolutely true. But some day we'll grow up, and then, by jingo, we'll show em. 
Confucius. The archbishop is an adult. When I was a child, I was dominated and intimidated by people whom I now know to have been weaker and serial than I, because there was some mysterious quality in their mere age that overawed me. I confess that, though I have kept up appearances, I have always been afraid of the archbishop. Burge Lubin. Between ourselves, Confucius, so have I. Confucius. It is this that convinced me. It was this in the woman's face that convinced you. Their new departure in the history of the race is no fraud. It does not even surprise me. Burge Lubin. Oh, come, not surprise you. It's your pose never to be surprised at anything. But if you are not surprised at this, you are not human. Confucius. I am staggered, just as a man may be staggered by an explosion for which he has himself laid the charge and lighted the fuse. But I am not surprised, because, as a philosopher and a student of evolutionary biology, I have come to regard some such development as this as inevitable. If I had not thus prepared myself to be credulous, no mere evidence of films and well-told tales would have persuaded me to believe, as it is, I do believe. Burge Lubin. Well, that being settled, what the devil is to happen next? What's the next move for us? Confucius. We do not make the next move. The next move will be made by the archbishop and the woman. Burge Lubin. Their marriage? Confucius. More than that, they have made the momentous discovery that they are not alone in the world. Burge Lubin. You think there are others? Confucius. There must be many others. Each of them believes that he or she is the only one to whom the miracle has happened. But the archbishop knows better now. He will advertise in terms which only the long-lived people will understand. He will bring them together and organize them. They will hasten from all parts of the earth. They will become a great power. Burge Lubin a little alarmed. I say, will they? I suppose they will. I wonder, is Barnabas right after all? Ought we to allow it? Confucius. Nothing that we can do will stop it. We cannot in our souls really want to stop it. The vital force that has produced this change would paralyze our opposition to it, if we were mad enough to oppose. But we will not oppose. You and I may be of the elect, too. Burge Lupin. Yes, that's what gets us every time. What the deuce ought we to do? Something must be done about it, you know. Confucius. Let us sit still and meditate in silence on the vistas before us. Burge Lupin. By George, I believe you're right. Let us. They sit, meditating the Chinaman, naturally, the President with visible effort and intensity. He is positively glaring into the future when the voice of the Negress is heard. The Negress. Mr. President, Burge Lubin, joyfully. Yes, taking up a peg. Are you at home? The Negress. No, Omega Zero X squared. The President rapidly puts the peg in the switchboard, works the dial, and presses the button. The screen becomes transparent, and the negress, brilliantly dressed, appears on what looks like the bridge of a steam yacht in glorious sea weather. 
The installation with which she is communicating is beside the binnacle. Confucius, looking round and recoiling with a shriek of disgust, Ach! Avant! Avant! He rushes from the room. Burge Lubin. What part of the coast is that? The negress. Fishguard Bay. Why not run over and join me for the afternoon? I am disposed to be approachable at last. Burge Lubin. But Fishguard? Two hundred and seventy miles. The negress. There is a lightning express on the Irish air service at half-past sixteen. They will drop you by a parachute in the bay. The dip will do you good. I will pick you up and dry you, and give you a first-rate time. Burge Lubin. Delightful, but a little risky, isn't it? The negress. Risky? I thought you were afraid of nothing. Burge Lubin. I am not exactly afraid, but... The negress, offended. But you think it is not good enough. Very well. She raises her hand to take the peg out of her switchboard. Burge Lubin, imploringly. No, stop. Let me explain. Hold the line just one moment. Oh, please. The negress, with her hand poised over the peg. Well? Burge Lubin. The fact is, I have been behaving very recklessly for some time past, under the impression that my life would be so short that it was not worth bothering about. But I have just learnt that I may live, well, much longer than I expected. I am sure your good sense will tell you that this alters the case. I, the negress, with suppressed rage, oh, quite. Pray, don't risk your precious life on my account. Sorry for troubling you. Good-bye. She snatches out her peg and vanishes. Burge Lubin, urgently, no, please hold on. I can't convince you. A loud buzz, zuzz, zuzz, engaged. Who is she calling up now? Represses the button and calls the chief secretary. Say, I want to see him again, just for a moment. Confucius's voice. Is the woman gone? Burge Lubin. Yes, yes, it's all right. Just a moment, if Confucius returns. Confucius, I have some important business at Fishguard. The Irish Air Service can drop me in the bay by parachute. I suppose it's quite safe, isn't it? Confucius, nothing is quite safe. The air service is as safe as any other travelling service. The parachute is safe, but the water is not safe. Burge Lubin, why? They will give me an unsinkable tunic, won't they? Confucius, you will not sink, but the sea is very cold. You may get rheumatism for life. Burge Lubin, for life? That settles it. I won't risk it. Confucius. Good. You have at last become prudent. You are no longer what you call a sportsman. You are a sensible coward, almost a grown-up man. I congratulate you. Burge Lubin, resolutely. Coward or no coward, I will not face an eternity of rheumatism for any woman that ever was born. He rises and goes to the rack for his fillet. I have changed my mind. I am going home. He cocks the fillet rakishly. Good evening. Confucius. So early. If the Minister of Health brings you up, what shall I tell her? Burge Lubin. Tell her to go to the devil. He goes out. Confucius, shaking his head, shocked at the President's impoliteness. No, 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 no. Oh, these English, these crude young civilizations, their manners, hawks, hogs. 
End of part three. The thing happens. End of section twelve.